All the drops in the ocean make up the sea, and every single one of us has a role to play. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantelle Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society's Alternative to Women's Hour. It's been a minute. I'm really excited to have a legend in the studio today, Bella Datsi, who is founding member of the Organisation of Women of African and Asian descent, teacher, a writer, an artist, an education activist, co-author of The Heart of the Race. And today we're going to be talking about Bella's recent book that's just come out this October. I think by the time this episode comes out, you'll be able to buy it. Stick in the Belly, Women, Slavery and Resistance. Bella, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's absolutely amazing to have you on, Stella. And I've just finished reading A Kick in the Belly and oh my life, like it is such a powerful read. It's such a powerful read, but Stella, I, I cried at various points reading it. Yeah, it was it, it was a hard write as well. It's hard to write as well. It, it, it's difficult to tell the story of enslaved women without looking at the context. And of course, the context is brutal. The context is brutal. And I guess, I mean, before, it would be really good for our listeners. Of course, we want, we want the listeners to buy the book, but we're going to have a sort of more broad conversation now about sort of themes within the book. I've often found myself trying to avoid watching films or TV shows, which depicts the enslavement of African people. I find it really difficult to watch. It feels a little bit like it's spectatory and all, all that stuff anyway that you, you would sort of at the beginning of the book. Um, but this didn't feel like that. It felt hard to read it, but it felt political whilst I was reading it. It felt important whilst I was reading it and felt a connection that I think is really hard to get when you're writing a book like this and I feel like you did it you've done it so well on that note it'd be really good to tell our listeners how you came about writing the book okay well um I think I say in the introduction it really developed out of an MA thesis that I did I was really lucky um in 1985 to get a year's sabbatical I think they probably just wanted to get rid of me for a year but whatever um I I managed to have a, a year out um, to just immerse myself in something that I was interested in. And um, we were talking earlier, weren't we, about accessibility. I can remember going to SOAS with my History O-Level and, of course, the heart of the race had just come out. So they thought I knew everything and I really knew nothing. I was completely self-taught in terms of black history. And, um, you know, it took me a little while before I empowered myself to say look I'm not going to be um, undermined or disempowered by what happens sometimes in academia which is you know the language that's used is postmodernist, this post-structuralist this and before you know it you feel like you actually don't know anything about your own subject or your own people in my case so once I overcame that little hurdle at the beginning of the course I just rolled up my sleeves and searched for the invisible women And um, I think that the title of my 
thesis was was exactly that searching for the invisible women but um i actually focused in in that particular piece of work on women in jamaica and for many years after that i just felt this um need to to write it and to bring it up to date to do some more research to widen it out beyond jamaica obviously and to make that story accessible and as i've said before you know um, the work had already started to be done by academics like olive senior and lucille matun mayor there's there's a number of people michael creighton people who had um begun to delve into that hidden history so i'm very much standing on their shoulders but it seemed to me as with a lot of history texts that it wasn't popular it wasn't accessible and i know that around was it around 2007 when they had 200th anniversary of the ending of the slave trade and i just felt so frustrated when i was watching programs and reading articles which just didn't acknowledge that women were even there let alone the role women had played and i think that's what really spurred me on and then of course it was just about finding time as with all black women you know it's always difficult because you're juggling jobs you're juggling childcare you're juggling relationships all the things that we have to deal with in our lives to just carve out that space and as soon as i retired i just said yeah this is going to be you know one of my first priorities honestly it feels like such a gift i as well as feeling really emotional reading it you you trace the slave trade from africa to the caribbean you talk about the middle passage like there's so many stages there's so many spatial locations talk about and you center african women within those different stages and one of the reasons why i was saying it felt like a gift is because i felt like when i was reading it i was seeing my her story as you say in a way that i hadn't seen it before it wasn't within this eurocentric gaze it felt for, even though it was so difficult to read and what so many went through was just so hard reading that stuff it felt familiar because i feel like so often as black women we grow up not really knowing about our history particularly if you grow up somewhere like britain and so much of our history is erased so much of how we tend to be is erased and so much of our sense of self is erased and it just felt like i was reading something that i just wish i'd had as a young person growing up so many white people around me got to have an in-depth and intimate look at their history and that's what i felt like i was getting with this book and um, um this is just me as an individual talking about what how the book impacted me there are obviously plenty of black women in britain who have grown up in ways which mean that they are able to have that connection to their histories and how integral this history is i haven't really had that much of it so for me it, it felt like a gift but it also felt like i was seeing myself in a way that I haven't before and it was painful but it was powerful and it was but and it was also embedded in resistance at all of the locations that you cover well i think that was the starting point for me i didn't want to tell a sob story you know anybody who studied this area of history knows that it's it's a horrendous story and um, i don't know whether you watched um, samuel jackson's enslaved last night you probably didn't because you avoid those programs but you know oh, is, no, i went to put it on and i was yeah. like i can't do it i can't uh, do it yeah i mean no we, we need to be aware of our own history and i don't know whether that means embracing the pain i think that's hard to do but certainly 
you can't claim to be self-aware unless you have a knowledge of your own history. And of course, I come at it from the perspective as a woman of African descent. You know, my my father's from Ghana. I'm not somebody who whose ancestors went through the process of enslavement. Those were my mothers and my sisters and my aunties who went through that journey. And what was important to me was to show their agency, was to show that at every stage of that journey, from the coffle line, through the barracoons, through the middle passage, onto the plantation, women found ways to resist. And in fact, not only did they find ways, they were often perfectly located and positioned to be you know, in the forefront of that resistance. Example, one of the things that used to happen when the enslaved were, or the captives were loaded onto the ships was that because of perceptions and stereotypes around women, quite often it was the men who were chained and the women were allowed to roam free on the assumption that they were less of a risk. But that made them perfectly positioned to identify the changes in the watch, to identify where the weapons were stored, to identify the weak links on the slave ships. And that often meant that they were the ones, they were the instigators, that, or they were the ones who went and freed the men to enable the men to come up on deck and, and do what they did. So there are some really, really interesting stories that, you know, again, because of the way our history has been told, often through the lens of, of racism and misogyny and quite often told and retold by white males, that agency gets lost. Even in the records, you know, they talk about the Negroes or the blacks or some generic term that actually suggests that they were genderless. But actually, they weren't genderless. And when you begin to look at what women brought to that project... Um, you see that they were perfectly located to be in the vanguard. It's just reminding me you talking now of one of the stories um, in the book about the women on the slave ship and them not being chained. And there was only about six captors on the ship and they locked them in the cabin mm. and then sailed back. I totally hear what you're saying about, about us not being passive and that that doesn't come across in the book I guess my emotion is more about how brutal it all was but also that sort of process of seeing oneself in a text like this and seeing that history so that resistance all those different stages I, I feel you feel ashamed that I don't know about this history enough and that's what the book has made me think as well like oh my god we were always resistant we were always organizing so many points we we're always trying to stop oppression we always kept people and and of course that that always is nuanced and it's complex and I think that's another thing you do really well in the book is you when you complicate the involvement of people of African descent in slavery as well. And um, again, I'm ashamed to say that's something which I only learned in the last sort of five years. I thought we were passive in the process of slavery. I thought that we were until recently. Reading about complicity in a very sensitive way, I think you do, was really powerful as well. And women were involved in that. But women were also involved in stopping their children being taken, in stopping other tribes being taken. And it brilliant, Stella, honestly. Thank you. When we try to develop an understanding of history, it's really, really important to keep class in our minds as we work through the issues of race and gender, because... Wherever you look throughout history, you'll see some classes more complicit than others and you'll see some groups 
more complicit than others. And I think it's very hard for us looking back on that period to really get it because if you were born into a system where that's the way it was, nobody had suggested there would be any other way that society could be organised, then I would imagine that a lot of people just grew up thinking, well, this is the way society is organised. And, of course, it took some very brave and far-seeing people to say, no, it doesn't have to be like this. And there are examples of women, some named, some unnamed, who got that even before they started loading slave ships, women like... Queen and Zinga, you know, she wasn't perfect. She was she was quite a heavy character when you read her autobiography and you, you really delve into her history. But everything has to be placed in a context. Society was brutal. Society was violent. It remains brutal and violent even to this day. But, of course, people had their own interests and they worked around them. And when you look at Nzinga, she was a flea in the Portuguese ear for 30 years. And yet we know about Queen Elizabeth I, who had a similar length of reign. We know nothing about Queen Nzinga. So you're right. Um, I don't think you should feel ashamed at all for not knowing that history because you're a product of this education system. And I've been a teacher for much of my life. And I've been frustrated through that whole time at the extent to which our story isn't told. Now, having said that, I think increasingly we do need to question this concept of black history to be frank. I mean, years ago, I gave a gave a talk, some town and gown lecture in York. And the title of the talk was, is Black History Month past its sell-by date? And that was like, oh, mid-90s, I would have said. And even then, I was beginning to think, you know, the way we present history as our history and their history actually allows them to separate out what happened to us as if it comes from another planet. It doesn't. It's their history. And all we really are dealing with is is hidden histories, people whose stories haven't been told, people whose voices haven't been heard, or in our case, both of those things, plus the added problem that where our stories are told, they're told through the mouths and the perceptions of people who are racist and misogynist. No, definitely, Salah. And our listeners will know that with this podcast, we don't put out a Black History Month podcast, for example. Like me and Tiso, we believe the same as what you're saying. We think that having Black History Month, although there are certain, there are definitely some merits to it and it can be an important place for development and dialogue and possibility of putting anti-racism at the forefront of some of the way society understands it, some of the way Britain understands itself. But ultimately, our position is that it does what you say. It serves a purpose of separating this history, our history, from their history. It also allows me to do this Black History Month, White History Year thing, which frustrates me because, A, it's not just about history, is it? It's about every single area of the curriculum. Yeah. And B, if we really are talking about being honest about history, then what needs to happen is teachers need to integrate that history into the the main narrative. You can't really have an honest discussion about the Industrial Revolution, for example, without talking about enslavement. You can't talk about the First and Second World Wars without the role of the colonies assisting this country to survive and to win those wars. So I think we just need to just revisit that 
and start really demanding for a decolonization of the curriculum that covers every single area, whether it's literature, maths, arts, science, you know, there's, there's scope for that in every single area and not just in every area, but at every age group. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. And do you know what? Just that exemplify with the book, what you're saying here as well, Stella, something that I learned in the book that I didn't know about. And I was like, oh, my God, everyone needs to know about this. One of the biggest imports into Africa during the time of enslavement and post-enslavement was were weapons and guns. Mm. I had no idea about that. And it made me think about, and we, we've covered on this episode, and I know you mentioned campaigns against the arms trade in your afterword, about this, the militarisation, the global militarisation and Britain's role in that, whether that's in Saudi Arabia, whether that's in um, Africa in this context. I didn't know. I knew that there was importation of goods, but I didn't know that they were selling guns. Like, that, that's so, it's, it seems really naive for me to say that, but I didn't know that. And it made me think about Britain not understanding its role in all of this stuff or refusing to understand its role in all of this stuff. Mm. And if you think about the role of weapons now in, in modern Africa, then you can see the continuity straight from that point to this. It's a horrendous story. And without the, that influx of weaponry, who knows how our continent might have developed. It might have been a very different story. Of course, the issue around guns is an important one because it puts so many African societies into a very difficult position in order to defend themselves they needed weapons as weapons became more sophisticated the only way they could access those weapons was through the sale of captives so you end up with this kind of vicious circle where you have to be complicit in something that you may actually want to be fighting against and of course there were some people who were happily complicit the whole time but there, there are examples all through that history of people leaders, chiefs, women, all kinds of people who stood up against European encroachment. When I read that, I was like, wow. And then I think that comes back to my previous point about how familiar it felt reading this. Like it just felt reading a kick in the belly. It felt like you were speaking contemporary moment or the our afterlife of slavery mm. and how important that history is. And I mean, we've said this in the podcast before, like lots of people are obviously saying this now, including yourself, but like the Enlightenment, all that stuff. Slavery is just as important. Slavery is just as important. Why is it not considered as important to the development of today? Why is it not mainstream that the, the stories that you tell in the kick in the belly are not understood as integral who we all are, not just those of us that are of African descent? I used to be quite alarmed when I heard about young black people in schools resisting being taught about enslavement and I can understand why they would because quite often the way it was taught was simply about victims and people who had no agency and who were done too but I think one of the things I'm trying to argue through the book is that our story of survival and resistance the fact that we live to tell that tale the fact that we live to dance it to sing it to paint it to you know continue to do the things that they tried to suppress all through that period is a real testimony to our survival and mm -hmm. I don't buy into any notion that we're some kind of superhuman I think it is about human survival but in the same way as we big up stories of people who resisted 
the Nazis during the war or people who resisted in other contexts. We should be seizing on these stories so that young black people can see themselves and feel proud of that history rather than ashamed of it. And there's absolutely nothing to be ashamed of, you know. We survived that. And as I say, we live to tell the tale. Now, when I say survived that, obviously I would qualify it. And I know, I know we're going to talk on uh, a little bit later about the, the implications for now. Yes, to some extent, we survived that stage of it. Let's put it like that. You give quite a few examples throughout the book of all those women leading survival and resistance at various points within slavery. But one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading, you give the example of the Zong, which is probably one of the the first examples within this period that I read about Mm. that added a nuance to the situation. It was the first time reading about something was like oh so it wasn't just like they picked us up and took us to the Caribbean like it wasn't just like that things went down at sea mm-hmm. and I'm reading a kick in the belly it's just pages and pages and pages of examples like Zong where things were complicated there was resistance there was struggle there was personalities these stories like you say would have would have definitely helped me I think as a young person understanding these stories understanding the complexity of slavery And perhaps we are getting to a point now where we can do that for young people. We can present them with this stuff. I know people like yourselves have been doing this for a long time, but making it more mainstream, understanding that things were were never straightforward, is perhaps what I think a kick in the belly is going to be a a call to arms to for loads of educators, for all of us, hopefully. Well, I hope so. The heart of the race after 30 years continues to be used in schools and colleges, and I hope the same will be true of a kick in the belly. Young people do need to know their history, and they need to know their history warts and all, and they need to know that there were people like them involved. I know that when I was a young child growing up, Um, and going to school in this country. I never saw anyone who looked remotely like me. Um, It was just all about old dead white men, really, (laughs) history to me, and I had no interest in it. And that's the other story, isn't it? That, you know, if you can see people like yourself reflected in the maths you're taught, in the science, in the history, and all those other subjects on the curriculum, then there's more likelihood that you're going to identify it with it and feel that, that you can own it. I think... Part of the problem, I know I was involved years ago in um, a project to try and raise achievement of African-Caribbean children in schools right across the country. And some of us were brought in to work with schools. And that was one of the key issues that we kept raising with teachers. You know, if you if you make whole sections of your classroom invisible, how do you expect those children to identify? It's about looking at the subject and thinking, well, that's got nothing to do with me because I don't see myself in it. In the same way as if you don't see black teachers in schools, then you're going to think that black people don't get up, get to be teachers, they're only going to be dinner ladies and cleaners. So, yeah, it's really, really important that we seize on these stories. Having said that, I'm also a little bit wary of stories that just big up individuals. I know historically we do need names, and and I, I, I certainly think in the context of discussions about statues and so on it'd be really good to have some powerful black females up on pints around the country the real story is is the hidden history isn't it is the story of the people whose names weren't known the people who died unsung unnamed but who nevertheless through their collective struggle achieved change 
And I think one of the stories in the book that has been really repressed, I think, or suppressed, is um, the way black women used reproduction as a form of resistance. It seems patently obvious when you say it, but once they stopped the trade across the Atlantic, there was only one source of new slaves, and that was women. If they didn't get the women to breed and give birth to a new generation of enslaved people, slavery was going to die a death. So there was a huge momentum that you see both in the parliamentary debates and in the discussions and diary entries and so on of, of the planters themselves around how do we get these women to give birth and to bring children, not just bring them to term, but actually ensure that they survive beyond the first few weeks of life. And you hear about discussions around amelioration, what they called amelioration, which was really an attempt to just make the conditions slightly less awful, make the diet slightly more nutritious, provide incentives to women, whether it was a hog or a cow or a monetary reward, that would encourage them to give birth. But when you look at the demography and you see, for example, the demography on, in Jamaica, you just see this steady decline in the birth rate. It goes down and down and down. And then when you add to that the laments of the slave owners and planters themselves, literally saying, you know, we've done everything and we still can't get these women to breed. An aspect of that which I found quite amusing was, you know, traditionally, um, not just in Africa, but certainly in Africa, women have used breastfeeding as a way of spacing pregnancy. So one of the things they were pressuring women to do was to stop breastfeeding their children for so long. And again, you see the planters say, we just can't get them to stop doing it. So um, that combined with the kinds of quite racist comments that you see in the parliamentary debates around, you know, these women just can't be bothered to give birth and they're too busy going out, leading their licentious lives or um, whatever, you know. One reference was to the fact that women use abortants. Now, think about that. We came naked. We came naked. Whatever we had was in our heads. You know, there was nothing else. And yet we brought with us the knowledge of the plants and the herbs and the other nutrients that we could use to control that little bit of our lives that we did have some agency over. There was no policing that. There was no policing that. There's a whole debate around infanticide and enslavement and all the things that make quite uncomfortable reading, really. But if you try to think yourself into the mindset of a woman who is giving birth to a child who is a chattel, who has, has no freedom from the moment that child is born, then you can see why some women, not all women, clearly otherwise we wouldn't be here, but some women just said no. I'm not breeding for Massa. I am not doing that. I'm not going to support this project by giving him the product of my, my womb. And I think that's a really powerful story that needs to be told because it is uniquely about women taking control where they were able to. Like our bodies, our children, this is the control that I have. Like the legacies of that throughout history is our reproduction rights is still something that globally we're fighting for it's used as something that can that we can be controlled by but equally it's something that if we have the means or if we can organize collectively to can take control of ourselves mm -hmm. and that was just I was reading it I was like oh my god this is brilliant such an important story and speaks to now as well which I think is a history book but it's one that speaks to so much of now
it's one, one we can take so much of now and that's it's just it's a, it's a real art to have done that because I don't think you get that in a lot of history books it feels distant I think that's partly just trying to you know I've always been a, a, an absolute fan of all history and it is difficult because unearthing those voices apart from Mary Seacole and Mary Prince you know there's not a lot of first person testimony from women who were enslaved in the West Indies there were these slave narratives in America but as I say that that context was a different context even the demography was different I hope it, it feels like these are women we know these are women that we can recognize I also hope that the language of the book is accessible enough for any any woman to read it, whether or anybody to read it, doesn't have to be a woman, whether or not they're university educated, because that's my other great mission, you know, to get the story out there. What's, what's the point? You mm-hmm. know, if we just have these debates in academic circles, then people can be forgiven for not knowing their history or for romanticising their history, which I think is the other danger. You know, it'd be very nice, wouldn't it, to say, you know, they came and they did this to us full stop but actually it was a lot more complex and nuanced than that as you've acknowledged you know even in the stories of women who became slave traders themselves in their own context there's a few women who's, who are named in the book women who are the products of, of relationships between European men and African women quite often even in their stories you kind of have to hand it to them that in that brutal dog-eat-dog environment they were still able to survive and to to to, to make a living I'm not condoning it, but that was the reality. Such powerful stuff. Everyone needs to get the book urgently. It's a must read. It's a must read. Stella, our listeners would be disappointed if I didn't ask you your feelings and thoughts about this current moment, how it possibly speaks to your organising over the past 40 years what lessons that you could perhaps pass down thinking about austerity obviously we can't ignore the pandemic as well and how that is I mean one of the things we've been speaking about more recently on the podcast is for the past two years we've sort of been urgently talking about how visceral working class people are experiencing austerity and this pandemic couldn't have come at a worse time I think like so many like myself like we just feel quite lost to be honest. Wow, that was a long question, Chantelle. I think I have to preface anything I say by saying I don't think anybody has any answers to this. This is a big one. Let's talk about Black Lives Matter to start with. My generation, people of my generation will probably feel we've been here before. Um, Not in the identical way, obviously, but there have been so many moments in history where black people have risen up against police brutality that it almost begins to feel a bit samey. What is different about this particular movement is, A, it is far more diverse, and you get the feeling it's far more angry, you know, in the way that it's spread across the globe. And some people are still out there demonstrating now, you know. I think that's all good. I think it's a very powerful thing to see people to come together and raise their voices and just say, no, this cannot be, not in our name. So that's powerful. What we don't need to do, I think, is to assume that we're engaging with this for the first time. I think there are a lot of shoulders to be climbed onto. There's a lot of past practice that can be learned from and built on. I talk about that in particular from the point of view of a teacher. You know, we did some wicked resources in the 80s um, through ILIA and I worked in Haringey. I mean, 
teachers were churning it out. We were really trying to come up with other ways of teaching that didn't present kids with a Eurocentric version of the world and of society. So I think it, it is worth trying to reclaim some of those resources and develop them in the education context. But in terms of sort of general organisation, all the lessons that we learnt or failed to learn need to be revisited, I think. Divide and rule, how easy it is for us to end up squabbling amongst ourselves and losing sight of the real issues that we are coming together to organise against. I think that's really important that we guard against that. I think it's important that we acknowledge commonalities rather than differences because we will not speak with one voice about these issues. There's no way with the diversity of the groups who are coming together that you're going to get that single voice. But what you can do is try to present the arguments in a way that listens to the voices of those who wouldn't normally be heard. And that's really important because we do, and we, we've had this through through history, haven't we, have people who become self-appointed spokespersons or self-appointed leaders who don't necessarily recognise that they're simply mouthpieces. It's not really for them to um, assume that they know all the answers or they can speak on behalf of everybody. So we need democratic ways. And I think certainly, you know, if I think about my history of, of organising in OAD and in the women's groups, perhaps because it was women organising, we attempted to try to set things up in a non-hierarchical way, in a way that did allow people to be more fluid in their engagement with the activism, but also in terms of, you know, how they articulated their needs and their issues. Yeah, it's a long, long question and difficult to to answer in a nutshell but I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned that can be revisited and and again I suppose because I'm a historian I think the starting point is know your history know your history know the people that you come from and learn about the mistakes we made as well as the the successes because we can only really grow by learning from from what we we could have done better you were talking about the pandemic as well and you can't really talk about the pandemic without really talking about the context which is the growth of fascism the growth of white supremacy and militias and what have you it's a frightening time i think and i guess what is good about this scenario if there's anything good that can be taken from it is that we're having to learn very, very rapidly new ways of doing things, new ways of engaging. I know I've spoken to many people of my age group who say, you know, back in the day I'd have been out there, I'd have been on those demonstrations, but I dare not because it could kill me. And I felt that frustration too, that actually I don't think I can afford, now I'm pushing 70, to be out there waving banners, but I want to be. And part of my response is is responding to requests like yours, you know, by if I, if I can't go out there and pound the streets, then the very least I can do is have intergenerational discussions with people like yourself and try to encourage what, what young people are doing right now, which is challenging a lot of bad practice from government right down, you know, through to the, the sort of micro areas that we could look at. I don't know. I don't have any answers to this pandemic scenario. I think it's early days yet, to be honest with you. And I, I have a nasty feeling that the real effects certainly real economic effects have yet to be felt. Um, There's going to be a lot of hunger, there's going to be a lot of homelessness, and there's going to be a lot of people who are frustrated by government messages that they have to stay at home and starve, basically. Yeah, we're still working that one out, but 
you young people, you have such skills around technology. You know, the one thing you have now that we didn't have 30, 40 years ago was access to anybody at the touch of a button. We had to slog the streets and hand out leaflets and do it <laughs> in the old way. But now you can do that so effectively. And um, I think that that gives me hope because providing you keep control of that technology and don't allow it to be subverted or used as a form of surveillance, which I think is also difficult, there's huge scope for reaching out and sending out messages to people, you know, on a mass scale. And that can only be a good thing. But we need to be clear in the messages we're giving out. And we need to be sure that the messages aren't divisive and that they actually galvanise people to do things that will make for meaningful change. Thinking about OAD and also your organising and you talk about commonalities, one of the things that I feel like we're up against now, and I'm sure you're aware of this, Stella, is we're finding it difficult to comprehend or understand that we're all starting at different paces within our collective fight for freedom like freedom or whatever sort of emancipatory life we all we all want and strive for and it's like one of the things that I mean in my personal life but also I know other people have been like this it's like we need to understand our differences but equally like we also need to understand that we're all not starting from the same place I kind of feel like politically I'm, I'm sat in the middle between understanding the people that want us to strive for the commonalities and we need those we need those but also really empathising with the people that say, but actually there are a lot of differences between us and sort of these these groups seem to be clashing at the moment. And I'm, I'm finding it really hard to sort of work out what is the best practice. I kind of get what you're saying. I think um, what I would guard against is a sort of identity politics that leaves us all in our little silos. Absolutely acknowledge that there are differences amongst us, that those differences have to be respected and that unheard voices need to be heard. There's no doubt about that. And um, women are just one of numerous groups that you could say that of who haven't been listened to or who've been made invisible or who've been erased from history. So um, that goes without saying. But at a time like this where we really, really, really need to come together if we're going to come through this unscathed, relatively unscathed, I should say, I would call for people to try to focus on their commonalities rather than those differences. That's not about ignoring them. It's about not letting them take over to the point where you can't find any common ground upon which to move forward, to recognise that there are primary and secondary issues in this context and that we really need to focus on the primary issues right now, which is survival survival at every level, you know, whether we're talking about surviving police brutality and the kinds of stories we're hearing on a daily basis, like the attacks on our young people and older people. I mean, it's not just young people who get murdered. I think George Floyd was in his 40s, was he? So, yeah, survival on on that level, but also just survival of the pandemic. You know, we need to recognise that we're not all going to agree with how we respond And I really do sympathise with young people my son's age, he's just coming up to 40, who say, I've got to live my life and I will not live in fear. I really get that. And and I think that's something that has to be negotiated. But in recognising that, you have to realise that actually you could be going out and killing your granny in the same breath. So it's, it's really, really difficult. 
um, we have to be able to organise, we have to be able to come together, we have to be able to interact and to join voices and strengths in order to defeat these isms, whatever they are. I think that has to be our primary goal at the moment, to really, as black folks, recognise, yes, we're different, we speak different languages, we come from different countries, we come from different contexts, different class backgrounds, all of that. All the drops in the ocean make up the sea. And every single one of us has a, has a role to play. However we come at it, whatever level of consciousness we bring to it, you know? I'm a fan, but that was like the perfect answer. I actually feel sort of more settled in my being oh, now. <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> that, was like, that was such a great answer. Like, that's so cool. You know, I come from a background where it was each, each one to each one, you yes. know? We have that role, don't we, to to make sure that if people are less aware of issues without browbeating them, we can just gently lead them towards the things they should read or the things they should watch or the things they should think about that can help them address that, that awareness. And I think in the same way, if we think about community rather than individual, then we yeah. will have a better understanding of how we need to take this thing forward because one of our Achilles heels, for want of a better term, I think you can see it through the kick in the belly, is individuals who are happy to just get rich and don't really think too much about the consequences for others who don't have access to the same resources. Now, we have wealth in our community, economic wealth, as well as other kinds of, of, of riches and I think there's a lot that could be done to just rein it in and recognise that, you know, achievement isn't the latest pair of Nikes. It's not, you know, how many likes you get on Instagram. That's not achievement. Achievement is actually making a difference. And whether that's with a single child that you happen to encounter or in a community context, it doesn't matter. Every little helps. We really have to... Um, get that into our heads because all throughout history there have been examples of divide and rule haven't there where we've ended up fighting amongst ourselves and quite often that's as a result of agents provocateurs who are placed in our organizations and whose role is to encourage that kind of division so we have to be very wary and guard against that how that works on social media i don't know perhaps it's trolling perhaps it's the other stuff that you hear about but I think we really do have to be careful you know yeah. focus on that need for unity right now. Tiso and I spoke a lot about fascism at the far right thinking more specifically about the radicalization of white men in particular let's talk about the UK context for example and I know that you have done work in the past on re-educating some of these men that have been prone to the types of more mainstream, the hate basically that they engage in, the organised hate and fascism that we're seeing, it's, grow, it's grown rapidly on, online now. But I don't think everyone has to adopt the role of teaching these people and or taking these people in. In light of what we've seen of Black Lives Matter, in light of what's happening right now with the pandemic, in light of how much this stuff has grown, what are your thoughts now on these groups? Have things changed that much when you were doing this work? No, I don't think they've changed that much in terms of the kinds of 
issues that attract people to the far right or indeed the kinds of stories and, and, and slogans that they use. But perhaps because of social media, the scale seems much greater. I mean, you've only got to go back to Nazi Germany in the 30s to see that fascism grows, doesn't it? And it's mm-hmm. empowered and enabled by a context and we've never had a more enabling context than we see now. Unlike some, I am actually talking to white people about racism. I think that's a choice that we all have to make. I do believe that if the pandemic has taught us nothing else, it's taught us that we are a global community and it is not in anybody's interest for us to be at war or on opposite sides of the fence. Now, you're referring to the work I was doing in the early 90s in um, southeast London. We took a lot of stick for focusing on the perpetrators of racism rather than so-called victims. And at the time, there was some quite vehement arguments. You know, what are you putting your resources into these kids for? The context was a real upswing in the number of racist attacks on the streets, everything from women getting their saris set fire to at bus stops through to people being pelted with rotten eggs and just being attacked in the street. And the project was a detached youth work project um, in the days when we had youth work, (laughs) which seems to be a a shrinking category now. But um, in those days, you literally could pound the streets and you could go up to kids and talk to them and try to engage them in conversations about what they were interested in. And we literally started with the interests of those kids and built upon it. But the way we did it, we used a sort of empowerment model. So instead of preaching at the kids, which we knew wasn't going to go anywhere, we put them into contexts where they would learn for themselves. For example, we took them into a prison because a lot of those kids were were on that that route from classroom to to prison cell, um, both black and white kids. And um, by taking them into the prison, but insisting that... The prisoners, when they presented their stories, always did it in paired groups, one black, one white. It spoke for itself, really, how when you're in a context like that, race actually ceases to matter. Survival is what matters. And many of those guys, whether they were black or white, had very similar stories because they had a certain class background. We put them on a ferry to France to play football, for example, some of the boys. But we let them negotiate the immigration process themselves without intervening, just so that they... They got a counter narrative to that story. They come in here and they take the jobs and they, you know, they, they walks in here as if there's no checks and balances. Those kinds of messages were very powerful. Now, of course, like with all projects like that, the funding was was ended after about three years. So we never really had the chance to evaluate the project in the long term. But I could say in the short term, we really turned some of those kids around because they'd never heard an alternative narrative. They'd never engaged with other black people. You know, one of our wonderful moments was there was a guy who worked with our team called Santi. I remember him, tall black guy. And he was talking to this group of white young kids and they were saying, you know, you're all right, Santi, it's the rest of them. You know, the usual sort of story. And, he, you know, the, those silly ones who wear those stupid hats. And he said, what, a hat like this? And he just took it out of his pocket. And it just silenced them because, of course, they realised that they couldn't get away with that narrative, you're all right, it's the rest of them. So I think it's a subtle and um, long-term project to change attitudes. But the most effective way of doing that is through encounter, through engagement, through putting people in situations where they see that the stereotypes just don't bear up, you know? That work you did, Stella, is such a, 
a poignant example of the different roles that are needed within anti-racism. It's the organising that you did that I hold really quite dear to me. I don't think at the moment I have it in me to do that kind of work, but I think I will do maybe at some point in my life. Well, I'm not in any um, way suggesting that everybody should go out and do that. And it's no, a very different now. But I think we need to continue the dialogue. And yes. ignorance isn't something that's peculiar to any particular race. We have ignorant people in our own communities as well, as I'm sure we all know. I would like to see, for example, a lot more popular culture devoted to these issues instead of rapping about how many guns you've got or how many women you've got or whatever. I don't know because I don't listen to a lot of it. You know, let's start producing material that really educates people. I know that you've got guys like Loki and Akala who are doing that, but I'd like to see more of that because that's subliminal, isn't it? I yeah. can still re remember the records that I grew up to, and I don't remember actually sitting down and learning the words to any of them, but I still remember yeah. them, you know? So it kind of works in a very subliminal way if you can get those messages across. Oh, Stella, thank you so much. Like, this is a, it's a Monday afternoon it's raining and I just feel like I've got sunshine in oh, my in my room now on my screen like it's so brilliant to talk to you Stella and thank you so much for coming on well you've your own little ray of sunshine into my room here so thank you too thank you oh, thank you so much for joining us Stella and thank you listeners for listening and we'll be back again next week thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso you can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 